Welcome to SageCast, the podcast of Pomona College. I'm Patty Vest. And I'm Mark Wood. This season on SageCast, we're talking with a variety of Pomona College faculty members about how they came to study what they study, teach what they teach, and love the field they love. Today, we're talking with art professor Sandeep Mukherjee, a noted artist, Guggenheim Fellowship recipient, whose work has been exhibited across the world in major cities such as London, New York, Berlin, and Mumbai, to name a few. Welcome, Sandeep, and uh, thanks for joining us. I'm so excited to be here. Um, well, let's start with your background as an industrial engineer. Uh, what, what attracted you to that field? Well, I grew up in India in the 70s. Mm-hmm. My dad was an engineer. And in those days, you could either be an engineer, a doctor, a lawyer, accountant, or struggle. Mm-hmm. I think it a lot had to do with my family upbringing, my father being an engineer, but it had to do with the socioeconomic conditions of the time I was growing up in. Mm-hmm. The opportunities were far fewer for artists like myself. I knew I was some kind of artist, but I had no image of what that looked like in the world. Right. And you went to Berkeley to earn a graduate degree. Correct, in, in, engineering. in engineering. So what were your plans for your career at that point? They were dismal. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us more about your dismal plans at, yeah. at that I, point. I started working for Texas Instruments okay. in Irvine as a uh, systems analyst. And I worked there for five years. And within a few years, I knew that was a dead end. And what were you doing? I was interfacing between manufacturing, finance, and inventory to make sure that the right amount of products were made, being produced at the right amount of time to satisfy customer demand in the right possible and the most profitable kind of way. So we had algorithms to make sure that the scheduling was planned so that Mm -hmm. the company would excel in customer service and profiteering. That doesn't sound very creative. (laughs) (laughs) So how did you... uh Maybe. I would sit in the meetings and I would draw people uh-huh. and I would take down the notes uh-huh. to uh-huh. do the tasks, my yeah. action items. That was like the joke inside, I, uh, mm-hmm. inside joke. My actions items were listed on the page, but the real action was on the drawings that were going along on the side. Yeah. It was always folded over. And I was like, I, at that time I knew that this was really not engaging, not uh-huh. interesting, not stimulating for me. I was, I could do it. So that was it. besides doodling on your on your notes, how are you feeding your art all these years? I started were, taking uh-huh. college classes in community college okay. in the evenings while I was working full time. Mm-hmm. And within two years of community classes, I was pretty clear that when I was engaged in the process of making something, mm-hmm. it was probably the most rich, intense, fulfilling, engaging experience. And it nothing compared to it, least of all, my mm-hmm. job. Mm-hmm. Um And then, you know, you realize that you've been making pictures since you were two and three and you had no idea why. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's, it's almost like an internal imperative that, that you have no logical explanation for. So when I think about it today, to go into a room all day and make marks sounds kind of ludicrous on one level Mm -hmm. and on the right kind of dimension, it's one of the most profound processes. Right. And you just have to click into the, the sort of modality that you want to be in. Mm-hmm. And so it was just about deepening one's experience, right? And sure. so you go into making art and then you realize the possibility of how much is out there mm-hmm. for you to explore. Yeah. And so that was kind of it. And also I got a lot of positive reinforcement from all my teachers. They said, 
This is it. Pay attention to what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so that mentoring I got was so significant. And all my friends, so like as a teacher now, I realize that not knowing what I know today, how significant it was for me to hear those voices when I heard them. Mm-hmm. Especially growing up. Thinking. So when I see a young kid mm-hmm. in class today and I see that they're struggling with so many things and their parents want them to be an engineer or a neuroscientist, and but they really just want to make art, mm-hmm. then I have to like share my story because that's the only way you can really, you know, yeah. teach something yeah. to someone by example. Exactly. Do you still use that engineering background in yeah. your art today? I think so because I think of my painting as a physics set, a chemistry set, a mm. biology set. So the chemistry of materials is very important to me. Mm-hmm. And the idea that material is just inanimate, waiting for humans to pour content into it is really anathema. So mm-hmm. I think for me, the idea of engaging materiality mm-hmm. in a rigorous way, as opposed to a cliched way, becomes critical in terms of expanding the field of painting, drawing, sculpture, whatever it is. Like, mm-hmm. What is the stuff that's making more stuff? Mm-hmm. And so that's where the questions really become. So like, what is painting today? How can it be interesting or relevant? How can we think about this material that's basically just a slice of flowing matter? And how can you think of how can you think of this slice of flowing matter and then think of your own life as a slice of flowing matter? What slice are you looking at? Mm-hmm. And what dimension is being highlighted? That's mm-hmm. the only difference. At what slice of your life did you realize that you now, had to pursue? I'm still realizing art. it every day. That's what's so amazing, right? <laughs> that, that you realized that art was the way to go and not engineering. I was playing the piano at the same time. Okay. So I was studying piano for many years. Mm-hmm. I was studying jazz. And for me, that required a certain kind of performance and a certain kind of manual dexterity that I was not, you know, I was never going to be a performance pianist Mm -hmm. that was never the intention Mm -hmm. or a composer but when I knew I was going to start making pictures I sold my piano when I went back to art school and I just said you know what I'll listen to piano I'll you know but it was I had to just like make that choice Mm -hmm. um but music is inherent in all the work right so it still continues on in other ways Mm -hmm. um let's let's talk about your work was that okay so far that was great that's great that's great. That's great. Um, so let's talk about your work. Um, do you, I mean, let's, in fact, let's be very, very materialistic about it because you, you've been talking about materials. Um, do you have preferred materials? Do you, um, I don't know, tell us a little bit about how you work. Yes. So now I'm coming to realize that one cannot take anything for uh, granted a priori, like Paints do this, canvas does this, art does this. And so part of, for me, is to realize to just break those preconceived notions mm-hmm. for me. So the way I'm thinking about materials is unexpected ways of using materials, materials mm-hmm. that haven't been seen in this May, materials that start somewhere and become something else. So it starts in aluminum, but then it becomes like hide or skin. Right. Or I mean, some of your work are in aluminum you, you told, If you hadn't told me it was aluminum, exactly. I certainly would never exactly. have known. So it's the same idea that you don't really know something until you really start dissecting. And, and the layers of information that build up completely changes your experience of it, completely changes your understanding of it. Mm-hmm. 
So I think the idea of material as existing along a spectrum, mm -hmm. just like everything else, mm -hmm. not fixed in space and time, I think is key. Does that evolve over time? Are there certain Yeah, I mean, I'm just learning, yourself? I'm understanding that more and more. I've been reading a lot about materialism, new materialism. I've studied a lot of, on my own, you know, I kid about this, but I'm on the University of YouTube. <laughs> I like that. I haven't heard yeah. that. I like uh, that. The University of YouTube is fantastic. Um, I have learned so much about philosophy, about Kant, about Hegel, about, I mean, stuff I never learned in mm -hmm. school. Mm -hmm. In terms of putting pieces together, uh, you know, I come from an Indian background. I was born in India, raised there for 22 years. My father is a Hindu. My mother is a Buddhist. My godparents were Jewish. I went to Catholic school. Oh. <laughs> That'll tell you something wow. about mm -hmm. my life. Yeah. <laughs> So, and you came out of that without being totally confused. Oh, I'm a mess. It's, it's a work in progress till the day I die. It's part of makes you creative, though. I think so. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it was interesting because uh, my grandmother told me stories about Hindu mythology. Then I was in Catholic school, and I would, you know, go to assembly and Father, hallowed be Thy name. And then we would go to the Jewish holidays. It was just like so incredible that there were so many narratives and traditions from the get-go. That you can pull from. And it's it's all there. It's like there's no one way or highway. It's it's these are just stories and you pick and choose. You know, so that mm -hmm. it somehow liberated me in a way to think. I was never raised religiously or dogmatically. There was no doctrination in my house whatsoever. Mm -hmm. And for that I'm very grateful to my parents. Is that, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Does that heritage of you know, Indian heritage and cross-cultural kind of heritage feedback into your art today? Oh, totally. I mean, you know, the history of India is about cross-pollination for the last 2,500 years. Mm -hmm. So when I think about all the, you know, the Persian influences, the Islamic influences, the European influences, and all the other influences, it's just such a hodgepodge that um, when they say, when people ask me, so where is your Indian identity in the work? I'm looking for it. <laughs> Still finding. Is, is there any part of it that is It's like bracketed, that there has to be some component that identifies with this. That right. screams this. Uh, yeah. so a lot of times they will ask me, are the colors very Indian? Mm -hmm. Or are, are there cultural <laughs> significance to using certain colors? I mean, I mean, these are all valid questions mm -hmm. too, but at the yeah. same time, I, they are perplexing to me. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. You've mentioned your uh, grandmother as being influential on, on your art. Tell us about that. Yeah. So uh, my grandmother has been blind her entire life. She mm -hmm. passed away three, four years ago. And I was very close to her growing up. I was the first grandchild in the family. And um, she taught me a lot about Hindu culture. Mm -hmm. through stories, basically, mythological mm -hmm. stories. Mm -hmm. And she would sing. She was a musician mm -hmm. and she was blind. Mm. And so when she came and spent summers with us or when I spent, you know, we spent extended times, with the grandparents, I remember walking with her in the garden and she would touch all the leaves and the flowers and the thorns and she would tell me what she saw. And then I would tell her what I saw. Mm -hmm. And then we would just try to make sense of, how vision can be so disparate, but yet so rich right. mm -hmm. in every dimension. Mm -hmm. So then something about that experience actually has kind of brought me to the place where I think that seeing and touching, they always come One together. With them, go with them. And I think that sense of touch is, is very up close. It, you know, you, it becomes very experiential. It mm -hmm. very, becomes very much about the body. Mm -hmm. And so I think a lot of my work has that quality of texture 
of wanting to touch, of wanting to see through a different membrane of the skin. And I get that all the time. Oh, I want to touch it. I want to touch it. And if they're in my studio, let it, let them touch it. But if once it's hanging in the space, no. It's a no, no. Look at the oils and yeah. over time, you just don't want that. Unless it's specifically made for handling, right. which there are pieces, but mm -hmm. the ones that are supposed to hang, you walk by them, just the grazing of your body and the wind current that happens activates the entire piece. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, the effects of yourself and the world are so invisible to you for most of the time. Mm -hmm. so, mm -hmm. so we're making a little bit more visible on a very basic level. Is, is there a, a unifying intent behind all of your work or is it, does each per piece sort of stand on its own? Yeah, I mean, I think the unifying content is that I'm the maker and whatever is coming from the world is coming through me and I'm, I'm sort of reprocessing and metabolizing and reconstituting it. And I don't pay attention too much to similarity in that way. I think the difference in the works actually will make it a body as opposed to everything being similar. Mm -hmm. So I think ultimately over time, you want like, I can see the connections more like now I can see, I was doing work in graduate school and there are aspects of that work I'm doing today. Mm -hmm. And I see that completely differently. I see it much more nuanced. I see it much more broader. And, and I'm like, oh, that's what I was trying to do. I had no idea. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like I'm, I'm piercing the metal now. When I was doing works in UCLA, when I was a grad student, I was piercing paper mm -hmm. and I was using color pencil and a needle to make the images. So the entire surfaces were punctured, like broken up and unified, broken up and unified. And there was dry pigment and then there were basically holes. And so that has come back into the new work that I'm doing where I'm piercing entire sections of aluminum, painted aluminum from another life, and then letting the light pass through it. So half the image, more than half the image has been removed and a new image has been created by letting the first light pass, first light pass through. Mm -hmm. So it's like creating a new life into the work. You mentioned uh, just now your, the, your new work that you kind of bring in something from before, like the puncturing. Walk us through what you're work, working right now. How do you decide the material? What inspires you? What does it look like? So if somebody's not familiar with your work, what is, how would you describe it? And how do you go through that process? On a very basic level, I would say the work is folded mm -hmm. and unfolded. Okay. It has, a, um, it's not an enclosed geometry. It's never has an inside and outside where the inside has to be filled mm -hmm. with something transcendent mm -hmm. ever. So that's not, I think, even when something seems closed, it's always a fold in the skin. It seems closed, but it's always porous and open, just like our body. So I guess... On a very large way, I would think I think of geometry and the way we occupy the world, not as enclosures, but as folded spaces. Mm -hmm. And materials that can fold and can be molded to create those kinds of skins. I think that's kind of where materiality comes in. It's the idea of, I'm not interested in pouring a mold and making brass or bronze or iron. I'm not interested in that at all. I'm interested in something that's lighter, that's more malleable, mm -hmm. that shifts so that the relationship of the materials on that topography mm -hmm. are always dynamic. Mm -hmm. They're never fixed. I see. So they're topological as opposed to topographical. 
How do you begin a work of art? Does it start with an idea? Yes, a- many ideas that get thrown away and changed along the way. <laughs> I have works that I started 10 years ago that I go back to now. Mm-hmm. Because I had an idea, I didn't really know how to proceed. Something else distracted me that seemed more immediate and available. And then after going through that divergent process, I come back to this, understanding something totally new. So it's, for example, when I pierced the papers in grad school, the skin stuck out. You know, they look like scars, scarification or pimples. They they basically Mm -hmm. had a sort of blistering, tattooing, scarification effect. But they were still on flat surfaces. And now the metal, as I'm piercing them, they're folding in so that light is passing through the work onto itself. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. It's becoming its own regenerative process. Mm -hmm. The earlier version didn't have that. It was Mm -hmm. fixed. Mm. Yeah. Now, are these, when you say it starts with an idea, is it a visual idea, a conceptual idea? Is it? Yeah, so these started in 2016. There were eight panels that were gravity images. So there were aluminum panels, mm-hmm. the dimension of my body, four by six approximately, kind mm-hmm. of a fit in that space. I laid on them, sat on them, stood on them, and had four people lift me off the ground in the aluminum. And so the aluminum took on a geometry that was about the gravity that mm-hmm. my body experienced. And then we, I came off and then that became the topography of the picture. Mm-hmm. So that's where that was the one, number one. Mm-hmm. Number two was after that version was displayed and I can show it to you later, I brought them back to the studio and then I used my weight again by walking on them and I flattened them out completely. Mm-hmm. Now I've cut them in halves of that and now I'm piercing through them. And I'm not sure how that original idea of gravity will connect to piercing, but I know light and gravity have a very interesting relationship, and I'm trying to figure that out. So these are the same, the same exact same works that you you're exact same works recycling through different works of art. They're, That's interesting. They only exist in image at a certain point. There are mm-hmm. virtual images until they reach a certain place, and that's it. Right. So you have the entire history through one body of work but only so much of it is actually present. So is it important for you that the work of art is kind of also bound in time, that it's not, you're not necessarily making things that are supposed to last until the end of time? Exactly. The time is always about your life and what happens. There are deadlines and then there are no deadlines. Mm -hmm. And some pieces get caught up in that cycle of duration. And then some people, some works get, transported to a duration that's much longer, but they all have an end point. They all have a finite end, mm-hmm. I think. And when do you know that? that like for example, so for example, I've been collecting mm-hmm. for the last 10 years. Uh-huh. Every time I get a bouquet or a set of flowers, something that expresses love, support, I've been collecting those flowers. Mm-hmm. I've dried them all over the 10 years. I've crushed them into a pigment, mm-hmm. the pigment of love. So now they have filled one and a half jars. Uh-huh. So I'm waiting for my pigment of love to fill a certain amount of jars before I can start using that so for So we should project. send you more flowers. <laughs> Always. Always. Well, you know what I'm saying? So yeah. these are durational projects. Yeah. And yeah. they're like, you, they, it just, time has to be in that space. Otherwise they won't work. So nobody knows about this, but like in a few years when I have enough material, I will do something with this, this pigment that is coming from, it's brown. It smells amazing. Mm. You know, I just put it in a blender and I take all the leaves, the stems, the flowers, they all turn into this incredible pigment. And I'm going to think about how I want to recreate that pigment mm-hmm. in the world. 
you mentioned uh, YouTube University. Uh, do the things you're reading, the the YouTube you just watched, the the movie you just saw, do those feed back into Absolutely. your work? Absolutely. I mean, my entire education on Deleuze has been through YouTube. I have tried Deleuze first. Mm-hmm. His French translations were horrible. Mm-hmm. Then I got... Then I learned of somebody called Manuel de Landa. Do you know mm-hmm, him? Mm-mm. He's like one of the foremost. Uh, he does teaches at Columbia. Okay. And he has done seminars on YouTube, ontology, Aristotle, Plato, Deleuze. I mean, so for me, it became this uh, way of looking, you know, 2,000 years of history. Mm-hmm. And then... Deleuze is interested in non-dual thinking, which is, you know, again, a very Hindu sort of, you know, so that the way of non-binary thinking. So they start to sort of conflate in certain places. Mm-hmm. And that to me is super interesting. Mm-hmm. So there was a sensation when I first started out of school. I was Indian. I had a shaved head. There was a lot of Buddha-like qualities. There was a spiritual aura. Uh-huh. Were like you do in. have a spiritual aura. And I'm like, no, I'm the most material person. Look at what I'm wearing. But that's the spirituality resides in the material. That's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What are some of the challenges you face when you're creating art? Not having enough time. Not having enough time. For what? To make all the work I want to make while I'm alive. Mm-hmm. I feel as I, as, I, as I get older, the sense of urgency gets more intense. I was way more laid back 20 years ago. I was like, I'll party. A lot of time to make work. I'm like, no. It's, it's moving fast. We'll get you a time machine. <laughs> Flowers and time machine. I have my to-do, my action items here. No, but seriously, it's incredible. The colors of 10 years of flowers mm-hmm. and the pigment and the way they smell. I'm like, I'm trying to think of if I want to use them as a dry part. I want to wet some of it so it becomes, and then leave some of it as dry. So I'm thinking about that deeply because I think it's really beautiful. And I wouldn't think of, so you said the stems and everything you include, everything, not just everything. the petals. No, everything. Mm-hmm. The entire bouquet as a totality becomes pigment. Hmm. Fascinating. Uh, this may be a naive sort of observation, but um, your works tend to be big, like fill the room size big. Is there, do you, have you thought about why you like to work in that sort of monumental scale? Not always, but the late, last few years have been that way. Yeah. Um, because when you think of delicacy, refinement, subtlety, minutia, you always think of them in the miniature. You think of them as small. You think of them delicate, you know, ephemeral. Culturally, we're ingrained to think of something. When it's big, it's monumental. I know it's heavy. Mm-hmm. But my tendency is like that. I want the work to be just as light and refined. And they don't have to be like these small, you know, illuminated manuscripts to have that quality of engagement or mm-hmm. the quality of, you know, bar- the Baroque, which is like God mm-hmm. is in the details. Mm-hmm. Really, it's about minutiae. So for me, that's a very unexpected thing to see that kind of detail in minutiae on that scale. It's unexpected. It's mm-hmm. also mm-hmm. not. It's mostly, most of the big stuff is really, you know, usually very blingy culturally sure. that mm-hmm. we know right. they're supposed to be. And these are just much more about slow reading. They're about going through, really looking at difference in very subtle ways and textures. So they're. And getting close to them. And getting very close to them. And so you're basically having intimacy in public spaces Mm -hmm. as opposed to Mm -hmm. having anonymity in public spaces. Mm. 
Is there a piece or an exhibit that you're most proud of? No, I find all of them have some drawbacks and mm-hmm. there's always room for making it better. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do go back to old works when I recall people tell me certain things about certain works that have really mm-hmm. been effective for them. Mm-hmm. And I do pay attention to that. And then I think about it as like, I've heard six people who have told me about that aspect of this work. And then I'm like, okay, let's think about that. So do you rework them or do you put that into a new piece of work? Either, but I really pay attention to the effects that the work is causing, mm-hmm. not just my personal causes. I think there has to be really a feedback loop. Otherwise art can become obtuse very quickly. Right. Um, could you walk us through your creative process? Uh, do you, how much is planned and how much is improvisational? Do you do a lot of studies? Do I used to do a lot of studies when I first began. Everything was plotted out. Their drawings were made to scale. They were photocopied and blown up in, you know, this is in the 90s. Mm-hmm. So I used to take it to Kinko's and I used to do 110%, 200%. I would break up the bodies in multiple panels and I would lay them down to see. Mm-hmm. Now I don't do that anymore. Now I mm-hmm. just... Every day I come in, today we did four pieces, compositions, and I just came in the morning, I made the marks with white tape, we laid them on the floor, we sprayed them, and then tomorrow, it's it, again, we're responding to it and it's getting closer and closer to being done. So now it's, it's kind of liberating not to have to be so exacting mm-hmm. and so fixed. Mm-hmm. Uh, because what I've learned really, the biggest thing I've learned is like the process is so forgiving and it's so much bigger than you and your mistakes. Yeah. I mean, was it that in, in the earlier days you were more intent upon perfection upon, well, upon having the finished piece reflect your original intent and now you're mm. more willing to let that evolve. The process. Yes. Yeah. And also I wanted, or earlier I wanted the, the works to show how skilled and how dexterous and how amazing <laughs> it was. Right. So there was this, part of me that had to prove something mm-hmm. and that has to has a lot of factors about it cultural yeah. personal whatever but it was really about demonstrating proficiency yeah i mean there are not anymore now it's really about communication and about empathy mm-hmm. and i'm much more able to go vulnerable than i was i was always mm-hmm. kind of like at a place of pushing out and i'm just open and you know you can come in because mm-hmm. there are big holes <laughs> I just glanced at her because you, <laughs> you're in trouble. You're in trouble. <laughs> Tell us about your studio. <laughs> steady, steady. My studio is the most amazing place. How me. does a, the physical space affect your work? I'm realizing it's been a very amazing space that the college has provided me, and it's made all the difference. Um, I'm. It's small now, for me. So that's a challenge. The other challenge I'm having with the studio is the light. I have very poor light in the main studio. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've got to figure out a way to get more natural light. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. But I'm here every day, five days a week. It's just work. And what does a day in your studio look like? Uh, coffee in the morning. Mm-hmm. Just staring for a while. Um, then I have some assistants who come in, mm-hmm. Gabe and Chaz. And then we make a plan for the day. Mm-hmm. There are multiple projects going on. There's one project that's going on with uh, mesh. So we're doing these beautiful mesh sculptures mm. of faces and rocks. So that I haven't shown you any of this. They're brand new. Mm-hmm. Uh, then we just started the piercing of the aluminum pieces for the second version. That's mm-hmm. brand new. Mm-hmm. So what's really exciting is after the first piece gets completely filigreed and pierced, we're going to place it. 
and we're going to spray the paint from the top so that like a colander, the paint will actually go into the other surface. And the little puckers coming out on the other side would be like these little lips coming out because I'm going to do flesh tones on one side. So they're, they're, they're just, mm -hmm. I don't know what they're going to be, but they're going to be completely penetrated. Mm -hmm. and, and light will be creating and dissolving the image in a way, I'm hoping. This concept of layers and flesh and, and keeps coming up in your work. Is that something in recent years? Has it always been these, uh, we're made up of layers and your work is made up of layers? Is, tell us a little I bit about that. I think there was a very early on, this idea of layers came to me or was, I learned it through the idea of Maya. Do you know the idea of Maya mm -hmm. in Hinduism and Buddhism? It's the veil of illusion and behind every veil is another veil and another veil and another veil. And it's mm -hmm. an endless veil of illusions, right? And Lacan says that and Freud says that the same thing behind desire is more desire and behind desire is more desire and more. Behind every picture is another picture. Mm -hmm. It's an endless sequence of pictures. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the reiterative ongoing slicing is where that idea came, but it comes from all traditions the Hindu tradition, mm -hmm. the Buddhist tradition of Maya, which are just veils and being able to see through and what you can't see through. So it's always about incompleteness. When you were talking about uh, the process, you were using the word we, is it, yeah. So the royal family of the Mukherjee. the royal family? No, I don't know why I said you work by yourself or do you ever have students who work? I have always students with working with me. Right now there's a student. I've had summer undergraduate art SERPs over the years, countless. It's wonderful. I've taken students to New York, London, Bangladesh for projects to install. I think the pedagogical, that aspect of having someone there who are not just taking in, but also giving back something that's very different and fresh. I think it's very interesting and important to me. So mm -hmm. I think um, having fresh eyes and different eyes and different minds, it's, it's to me, it's not um, threatening. It's just, hey, what do you think? And I mean, we're all intelligent people, right? That's right. I've just been doing it longer, that's all. And how did you get into college teaching? Mm -hmm. Well, I graduated with a degree from UCLA. Mm-hmm. And I was fortunate to get hired by Irvine almost immediately, okay. UC Irvine. Mm -hmm. And I was also showing. So really it was a bad matter of surviving, paying rent. So for many years I was on the freeway going to all different schools teaching. Mm -hmm. Otis, Irvine, USC, Occidental. Yeah, I pretty much taught everywhere. And then um, one of my colleagues, Mercedes, when she was on sabbatical, she invited me to do the, her class. And then Rebecca McGrew from the Pomona College Museum of Art invited me to do the 21st series. And that was it. And then I applied for the job and that was it. And Two years later. Nice. Um, could I get you to talk for a minute about the art world in general? Um, you know, behind the work, the, the, <laughs> the work of artists, there's this, this sort of, you know, international culture. Um, there are rich people who buy art. There, you know, um, but it's an on, it's been a forever, it's very right? Complicated, the right? history of commerce is a history of art. Yeah. They're How just, do you navigate that? Uh, by having people who represent your work. So you don't have to do that work. <laughs> so I have a, you know, I've worked with dealers in New York in LA in Berlin and Mumbai. So mm -hmm. they do all that aspect of it. Occasionally I'll be called in to meet a collector. And they're challenging mm -hmm. meetings. Mm -hmm. That's all I can say. 
What do they want to know? What, what, how do the, what are they interested in? They are interested in the myth of the artist. Okay. Mm -hmm. Mm. And they want a really good story. Mm. Yeah. They don't want a good work. They want a good story. Mm-hmm. Is that yeah. terrible? No, they no, they look with their ears, not with their eyes, um, and think with their wallet. <laughs> Sometimes mm-hmm. they're also museums. No, I mean the art world is like any other world, right? There's some amazing stuff, and then there's some horrible stuff. But they're very linked in with the movement of money, capital. Right. People on the boards of museums also have collections, and there's a lot of um, conflict of interests. Can I say? Mm. Uh, people who are collecting on the boards who are promoting the artists that they, co- you know, you know how yeah. that goes. Mm-hmm. And because if that artist becomes more popular, the the value of yeah. their own collection goes but up. But you know what? Time. Yeah. We'll take care of all of this. Good stuff will last. Right. It always has. And well, the art- other stuff will get revalued. I mean, there's so much mm-hmm. stuff that's coming out all the time, right? And mm-hmm. it's really hard to navigate, especially with contemporary art, unless it withstands the test of time. And scrutiny over time, I mean, you don't really know. And talking about the test of time, what what artists do you particularly... Like, for example, Caravaggio had a rebirth at a certain point. uh, And all of a sudden we realized what an amazing artist he is. And we're looking at him now. I mean, there's so many artists who've been... And even the big artists that we think of now, like uh, Ed Ruscher, for example, in LA, he's thought of as an iconic LA artist. You don't understand that sort of dull, low periods he's had through his career. And in the sum arc of his total, you know, of his practice, you see something wonderful. Mm-hmm. But the the short terms, you know, experiences were not necessarily so. They were pretty tough. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what it is. You want a happy ending. But, you know, the world also wants to see somebody go up and fall down because it's very entertaining. <laughs> You know, yeah. the one hit wonders not just exists in, art. in the art world too, mm-hmm. not just in the music world. Mm. Speaking of, of that, are there works that you do that never see the live day? Yes. They go straight into the trash. <laughs> Basura is Basura. happy. <laughs> well, how long does it take you to give up on a work of art? If it, Quickly. If it sometimes. <laughs> yeah. But sometimes for a long time. No, there's something there. I know it. I just don't know how to bring it out. Yeah. And how do you go through that process? How I put it away in the flat file because there's already so many things going on. So for me, it's just about things sitting in the oven. And then at some point, something will click and say, oh, my God, I remember I put that. That was out. It comes. But you learn from the failures. Always. And it's so hard. I know it's such a cliche. You learn from your failures and it's like, yeah. no, I don't. I want to be successful <laughs> every time. And then, you know, 15 years later, you're like, yeah. That was right. Right. <laughs> right. Too funny. Um, as a teacher, how do you balance the importance of self-expression and freedom against the important the importance of rigor and development of your technique? Well, I think uh, I, I try not to separate the making and the thinking. Mm-hmm. I don't think form and content are separated. I mean, we have arbitrarily separated them. So I have Mm -hmm. to really think about why they're doing something. Mm -hmm. I try not to tell them how to do it. Mm -hmm. There's no prescription. I think that's the hardest thing. It's like the students want to know, what should I do? Mm -hmm. And I said, well, let's see, you can approach it this way or this way or this way. No, but what should I do? You figure it out. It's hard. 
when you've been told what to do for so long <laughs> in your life and suddenly you're like, what? I, I don't can, know what to do. I can do what I want. Really? No, seriously. People come to me and like, oh my God, it's so hard because I don't know what to do. I can do so many things. I'm like, that should be joy. Yeah. Choice of freedom. Um, what would you, what would you say to parents who have a creative child like you and who, um, you know, are there do's and don'ts for cultivating creativity and helping a child move, you know, in the right direction? Yeah. I mean, I think emotional and moral support is great, but I think also explaining to the child that it's it's just as rigorous and hard as any other field it's not mm -hmm. some glamorous <laughs> yeah. romantic erratic space mm -hmm. it's down and dirty mm -hmm. there's a lot of technique to learn there's a lot of i mean it's and you, you develop, develop your own it. technique and you develop yes. that through work and through yeah. understanding what it is you're trying to do because techniques don't all reside there in a box of tools right right that's just a starting point. So that's what I always try to say, that there's no right or wrong way to paint. But you also have to kind of go through that toolbox. Exactly. To you have around, to right? know what's already there to know where you can go from mm -hmm. because you mm -hmm. proceed from whence you are. Or whence, mm -hmm. you know. So you have to know what's before that. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think history is so important, right? Um, and it's important for me to, so for example, like it's interesting for me because, you know, coming from a different culture, when I talk about, canonical works of art that are of Western origin. I have a slightly different take sometimes. So mm -hmm. like I will share anecdotal stories with my students. Like the first time I saw a Mark Rothko painting, I was like, huh? I have mom, my mom's saris look better than this. <laughs> In fact, if I took cut one of my mom's saris and put it up next to this, I would kick this painting's ass. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. I'm coming from a different paradigm sure, here. Sure, sure. Yeah. yeah. And that's really interesting. Because it breaks that monolithic sense of hierarchy and movement exactly. and dimensionality, which which really is oppressive. Right. Mm -hmm. For our listeners that want to go see your work, where can they do that? Um, right now, I don't know. Um, <laughs> Anywhere in the world. There will be, let's see what's coming up. I have a solo exhibition coming up in Mumbai. Okay. Mm -hmm. I'm aware of that. Mm-hmm. I'm working on a huge federal courthouse project that I would just got a big federal commission mm -hmm. in Ohio, mm -hmm. in Toledo, which is the glass capital. Yeah. So I'm doing a work that's going to involve a floor, which is terrazzo. Mm -hmm. It's going to involve hanging sculptures from the ceiling and a piece on the end. It's a 44 foot glass tunnel that's going to be connecting the new glass building and the old Beaux-Arts building. And mm. I'm doing that whole piece. Huh. So that'll be opening in 2020. So uh, it's it's going to be permanent yeah. in the the judicial system. Which Next is time cool. I'm in Toledo, I'll remember that. I'd never been to Toledo. <laughs> Did you know it was a glass capital? No, no. Corning and all those companies are there. And when Detroit used to make cars, mm -hmm. all the glass was being produced for the cars in Toledo. Hmm. Well, on that note, um, I think we're going to wrap this up. Um, <laughs> our thanks to uh, uh, art professor Sandeep Mukherjee for talking with us about his artistic journey. Thanks. Thank you very much for having me. This was fun. And to all who've stuck with us this far, thanks for listening to SageCast, the podcast of Pomona College. Until next time.